I want to talk a little bit about myths. Uh-huh. And creating new myths. Uh, Lovecraft was one of the first people to start this in horror, creating yeah. the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your attempts to create a new myth. I, I, I would not rec- honestly claim to attempt something so um, ambitious as that. I'm not even sure it's even possible. I think what you can do is you can... Um, you can put a fresh twist on something that's already there. But I think that over the whatever, two two and a half thousand years that we've been telling stories to one another about the gods and, and, the, and the demons and, and the interplay between the evil and, and good forces, spirits which exercise their powers over us, I think just about every piece of mythology has been touched upon one way or another. So my thing isn't really, I would not be so uh, um, uh, arrogant, I guess, to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm really trying to create a new myth here. What I'm trying to do is make something fresh for people so that, um, for instance, I did a, a book called Weave World, which was about uh, a world which was woven into a carpet and uh, to be hidden, a world which was a magical world, which was which was under threat from um, a force which thought it was thought it was one of God's avenging angels. It turns out not to be one of God's avenging angels, but it certainly thinks it is. And um, so the these magical creatures weave themselves into this carpet thinking that they will sort of hide out for a period of time and the hero at the beginning of the novel falls into this carpet and sort of discovers the life inside it. And the book is published, I don't know, in 17 or 18, cha- 18 languages, I think, and and uh, it's it's about to become a miniseries on, on Showtime. And it's one of those myths which I didn't invent, but I kind of put a half-new twist on. The idea of the hidden world is as old as as, as Olympus. Um, the idea that, that some creatures, magical, special, uh, possessed of divine or semi-divine powers are just waiting around the corner if we just knew which corner to turn... Um, is are ideas which have haunted the imaginations of little kids and adults f- forever, I think. What I was trying to do with the carpet thing was say, well, here's a new twist on that. Here's a carpet. And a carpet is something you stand on all the time, and so therefore it's it's right there in front of you. And it, I think it maybe it made the idea a little bit more um, domestic, frankly. Um, and so it was uh, tremendous. It was it's tremendous fun to be able to do that. To be able to give people. Um, um, I did a book, uh, a book for children called The Thief of Always, which is a a book about uh, a a kid, a, an irritated, unhappy kid who gets uh, seduced away to a house where it's it's it's. 
it's uh, spring in the morning and it's high summer around noon and then into the afternoon and then around five in the in the evening the 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 halloween the trees start to fill with burning pumpkins and halloween comes to the house and by midnight it's christmas and the snow falls and you fall asleep happily with a present and the following morning it's spring again and this boy harvey is happy 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 in this place until he realizes there's a price to pay for being there now that isn't a new myth it's faust and it's uh, Rip Van Winkle. And it's Rip Van Winkle, exactly right. And it's probably ten other things. But there's a little bit of a half twist on it. And and that's all I really want to be able to do. I want to be able to make the thing new. And one of the things that one of the, honestly, the greatest joys for me is because that book is, I think, probably a million and a half in print in America. And it's it's taught in schools. And one of the wonderful things about that is coming to doing a signing and doing a signing tonight, and there'll be somebody there with a bashed copy of this book, and they'll say, this is the first book I read. This is the first book that managed to get me reading. And for me, that's great, because and I was, uh, I was on a De- a Dennis Miller's show on Friday, and I was talking backstage, and unfortunately, Dennis, I didn't get to much of a chance to talk about it live something interesting has happened uh, not just here in America but also around the world of late children have started to read again yes and that's uh, you're working on that as well I'm working on that and and thank the Lord so is J.K. Rowling <laughs> yeah. and and uh, Phil, uh, Philip Pullman with with his work with his wonderful uh, his dark his dark materials that trilogy I mean, it's it's amazing to see because I think probably if we'd been sitting here 10 years ago, we probably would have been pretty pessimistic about the prospect of children uh, moving into the new millennium as readers. Um, but I'm finding uh, everywhere that, uh, including my own daughter, the daughter that I'm my stepdaughter, my husband's daughter, Nicole. I mean, she has been through the game stage. She did the games, and now she's reading. And uh, I, I never thought this was going to happen. And I, I think we have a huge amount to thank Harry Potter for, um, and a lot of other people too. And I think we have to thank the internet as well. Curiously, because. You communicate on the internet in words. Yes, it's internet is a reading experience. It's a reading it and, and a writing experience. Uh, yes, which is even better for yeah, the kids. Yeah, completely. And so, um, I feel as though something, uh, something really rather wonderful, is is going on out there. I wanted to ask you, genre fiction. One of the joys of it is that it allows you to externalize. Mm the interior sure um horror fiction you exteriorize externalize your fears Mm -hmm. fantasy your hopes Mm -hmm. and your joys i'm wondering if you could talk about how you move from horror fiction to fantasy fiction and talk a little bit about the the onset from take us from weave world and the damnation game to to aberat well 
you know, firstly, I think I've always written a little bit of both. I think there's always been an element of fantasy in my horror, and I think there's always been an element, element of horror in my fantasy. Weave World has some pretty scary things in it. Even Thief of Always, we were talking oh, about sure. before, has some scary stuff in there. Um, and Magica, which is probably my favorite of my adult books, books for adults, has some very, very dark material in it. And some very beautiful material. And, what, it was a right. wonderful combination of wonder and terror. And now for me, you see, you've just described my perfect read. And you've also just described the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, the Bible is is the is the model. Uh, Rick is giving me a a panicked <laughs> look here, like don't go there, Barker, don't go there. No, I think uh, I think the, the the Bible is is an amazing model for us in terms of giving us uh, and. Uh, well, going back to this idea of a menu, an extensive menu of of commandments and stories and and histories and scary stuff. You read Revelations recently, no, you know? but it's scary. Yeah, yeah. Um, not a lot of jokes, I grant you, but um, poetry, amazing poetry, Song of Solomon, amazing eroticism. Um, and I think you know what I always find funny when you hear the the um some of the more fundamentalist guys ranting as though the Bible were their own private possession. They seem to have forgotten all the bits of the Bible that don't suit them, including the erotic elements you know so i I feel as though I've always tried to m- mingle elements, but as I moved into my middle 40s. I, well, early 40s, actually, I went to HarperCollins, my publishers, and I said, you know, I want to do some books about an invented world which will do for me uh, what uh, C.S. Lewis had done for him when he, when he uh, gave us uh, Narnia. I wanted to find a world where I could put all my dreams and some of the dark stuff, a lot of the bright stuff, some funny stuff, some weird dreams, and just wanted to do that. And they said no. They said no. You're doing very well. You're making us a lot of money. Don't, don't go spoiling it and you know, changing them, changing you know horses yet again because I'd gone from horror to writing fantasy. Now he was me saying I wanted to go and write for for children, and uh, I was frustrated. And I I had built myself a place to paint at home, and um, I started to pick up oil paintings, oil paints which I had never done before. And I started to paint, and I started to paint without really thinking what I was painting. Uh, Paul Clay, the Belgian painter, says. Uh, drawing is taking a line for a walk, which I think is an amazing it's phrase. It's a wonderful it's phrase, a great yes. phrase. Uh, and painting for me is is pretty pretty similar kind of thing. I mean, I don't really know what I I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm just going to walk. And so the canvases in a magica, and there's 105 in the first book, 125 in the second book, 
are Aberat, you mean? Aberat, what did I say? I'm I magic. My apologies. Yes, Aberat, exactly. In the two Aberat books are um, uh, those paintings begin with a with you know me picking up some orange and seeing where the orange wants to go. And after I had about 220, 230 of these paintings, and as we discussed before we came on the air, some of them are very big. I mean, the the biggest of them is 27 feet long. I actually went to uh, I went to New York and I said, I want you guys to come and look at something. Don't be judgmental about it. Just come and look. So an amazing lady called Joanna Cotler, who has her own imprint at HarperCollins and publishes a lot of wonderful people, Jamie Lee Curtis amongst them, uh, and uh, came out to L.A. And I said, okay, just come into my studio, and there were 250 paintings. <laughs> And I said, "This is that's a big studio, yeah. What a twenty-foot painting, yeah. Well, so it was actually spread not just through the studio, but actually outside into the garden and every everywhere. It was everywhere I could put paintings. And uh, and uh, she said, "Well, go. What is this?" And I said, "Well, I don't really know. I, I know it's called Aberat. I've decided to call it Aberat. I don't really know what the stories are yet because I haven't decided to write them because you haven't told me I can." Um, but I'm going to, and I really want to tell these stories, and I really want the paintings to lead me to the stories. In other words, I want to invert what is the the conventional structure, which is you know you write the, you write the story, you you um you, you give it to an, an illustrator, or perhaps you give it to yourself to illustrate, and somebody then makes the paintings. Here, I was making the paintings and letting. The paintings dictate what the story was going to be. So um, I've written two of those four books out to quartet. Second one comes out today. Um, Abrat Days of Magic, Nights of War. And uh, it has 125 of those paintings in. There are now 500 of those paintings. And wow, yeah, no, it's a lot of paintings. Is it ex exhibited? Well, we did a we did a limited exhibit in uh, L.A., but um, my I haven't sold any of them, and nor is it my intention to sell any of them. I want to hold the collection together at least until I've had time to tour the books, uh, to tour the paintings as extensively as I can. And um, Disney's bought the rights to the movies. And uh, tell us a little bit about the scenes with uh, Disney and DreamWorks touring your house. Well, that was very fun because you know I ha I'm lucky enough. I have three houses in a row. I bought I bought a house. I mean, this is this is just <laughs> luck, dumb luck. I bought a house, a, a nice house in in L.A. in a quiet, quiet neighborhood. And the house beside it, which was pretty much a wreck of a house, uh, went on sale. And I thought, boy, if I don't buy this, I'm going to have neighbors. So I bought <laughs> it. And a few years later, the the house on the other side of the, the of me went on on on, uh, on sale. So I did the same thing. So I have the three houses in a row. So um, I now have a house which is just 
paintings. And everywhere you go, um, I mean, sometimes in some places the paintings are five, five paintings thick. I mean, they're layered against one another. And there's nothing much you can do about that because, you know, there's a lot of them there. But um, my agent said, you know, we need to show this to the, the studios. And I said, well, the only way to really do that is to bring the studios to us because I can't take these paintings anyplace. And he, I said, oh, I don't think they're going to do that. And he said, oh, I think they will. And he said, because I think this is... This is the first time they've ever heard somebody say, "Come and look at my etchings." You know, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that's the first time they heard well, that. Well, well, for some of them, I believe me, I think it's the first time. So, they, uh, you know, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg came up, and uh, some of the Disney folks came up, and John Kelly came up, who was then running Sony, and and. Uh, it was it was wonderful because the house is I mean there is no square inch of wall visible. It is just color everywhere. You've seen the paintings. I mean they're they're densely colored, but they're also densely painted. Rick, they're they're impassed. Oh, there's paint on paint on paint, so that you know the paint almost casts a shadow. I mean there's that much thickness of paint, and so. Um, it was wonderful. I mean, the people that I was frankly very nervous of, like Jeffrey Katzenberg, who I have immense respect for, but I'm also nervous of, um, came in, loosened his tie, sat cross-legged in the middle of the floor on the carpet that I had used. Interestingly, as a, as a nice aside, the carpet that I had used is the inspiration for the carpet for Weave World. Sat in the middle of that carpet, and said, so tell me, tell me the story. And um, the effect that the paintings had was nice. It was, um, you know, these are very powerful men. That's great. Now, one of the things about these Aberrant books that yeah. I really love is that your publisher has put in a lot of money to make those beautiful books. The paintings are perfectly reproduced yeah. it's heavy paper yeah how did you ask for that or did they volunteer that god bless them joanna kotler volunteered that she said if we're going to do this we're going to do this like art books these are going to be like uh like old-fashioned books the way books used to be and um you know because they're oil paintings because frankly i'm not an illustrator i'm not experienced in this i had no um i have no sense of i i haven't painted any of these paintings to fit a particular page size or anything like that i was just painting so uh when joanna um uh you know took this on board she was taking on it she saw it uh, a novel project um in the sense that i was writing a, i think the first book is a hundred and 5,000 words, and the second book is 125,000 words. So they're big books. Um, but they also have a lot of paintings in their art books. And she said, I'm treating these like art books. And yet, um, she's brought them in at an amazing price. I mean, I think, you know, you 
can probably find these in certain bookstores for I don't know sixteen, seventeen dollars, which I think is pretty amazing. It's for, amazing uh, for how many pages they are and how much color color there is. Them. And it, yeah, and I, I hope I hope that these will be the kinds of books that kids will say, "I want to see more paintings. Show me paintings, mom and dad." Not not Bach's paintings. Paintings take me to a gallery, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, there's a lot of uh, miraculous things which are in art galleries which kids just don't get to see anymore, and um, and I think that's a a thing that uh, families could do. And the wonderful thing about painting and the word, of course, is that it's it's interactive. It's not, you know, you go and stand in front of, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a Gauguin or a, or a Van Gogh or whatever. The story isn't immediately uh, in front of you. You kind of have to, uh, you have to find the story for yourself. You have to tell it to yourself or tell it to each other. It's 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 a it's a wonderful it's been a wonderful experience to be able to to do that and to find that uh, the paintings have have given people such pleasure i wanted to talk a little bit about these books the prose in them is mm. remarkable Thank because you. they're they're long books yeah but they read just incredibly fast. They're really fun and, and easy to read, but yet they don't feel dumbed down. Right. How did you do that as a writer? How did you approach this project well, in a way that was different maybe from other stuff you've done? Yeah, I mean, it was a, there were a bunch of things I wanted to do. Clearly, there were going to be no cuss words in this book. There was going to be nothing sexy in this book, and there was going to be violence of a very, very uh, minor kind in this book, and those were the rules. Those were the things I was not going to shift from because these books were going to be read by nine, ten-year-olds and, and upward. And um, so... I needed to, at the same time, find um, a kind of luxury in the language. You know, Ray Bradbury was one of the first people who introduced me to this idea. The words had this kind of beautiful, um, oh, cadence, you know. When uh, there's one of his books called uh, Silver... Silver Apples of the Moon, Golden Apples of the Sun, which is actually a Yeats poem. Um, uh, Two lines from a Yeats poem. And uh, when I found the Yeats poem, which is amazing, um, it it was a revelation to me because uh, here was Bradbury had led me to Yeats, who who was going to lead me to a bunch of other Irish poets and so on and so forth. And and I think that's what words do, beautiful words do. They make you look at the world differently and they make you look at the way you use words differently. Um, it's... Um, you know, one of the sadder, sadder things, and I've, I, you know, we earlier in this conversation we were celebrating the use of words in, on the internet. No question, it's really great that that young people are using the internet to communicate. But it is debased language. It is language which is spelt wrongly, 
uh, and it's uh, it's very often overly simplistic, you know. And what I'm trying to say is, um, hey, I'm going to give you some difficult words, but they're going to sound great. And because they sound great, I remember my father coming in one time and saying to me, what does verisimilitude mean? And I thought, huh, and I was probably about, I don't know, 11, verisimilitude. And I said, why do you want to know, Dad? He said, because I didn't know, and I'm trying to know it, figure out what you know. And I thought verisimilitude, verify, comes from verify. Yeah, I said, it's something to do with truth. It's something to do with the similarity to truth, similitude, verify, which is what it was. I kind of worked it out. I didn't get it completely right. But I remember the look on my dad's face. It was one of, my dad was a hard man, a hard man to impress. And I remember him, I remember him clocking that I was smarter than he thought I was. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that... uh, I think that the use of words I think I think it's I think it's great if you can if you can give people the music of words. I've put some poems in. I've invented some poems. There's a poem at the beginning of the first book um which is a rather depressing poem in, in a way. It goes uh um um uh, drown uh, Drown the sh- drown the crew. How does it go? Have you got the, have you got the poem right there? Have you got the book right there? The first book. You don't have it. Yeah, give it to me. Give it to me. Let me read it to you. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Thank you. Here we go. Here we go. You can cut the dead air out of that, right? Oh, absolutely. That's why yeah. we have these fabulous digital tools. Absolutely right, right, right. Life is short and pleasures few, and hold the ship and drown the crew. But oh, but oh, how very blue the sea is. And I love that poem because it's such a simple little idea, you know? Life is short and pleasures are few, and hold, there's a hole in the ship, and the crew are drowned. But oh, but oh, how very blue the sea is. And there's a painting above the, the, the poem of a sailor sitting on a ship going down, looking at a blue sea. And um, poems can have that effect upon me. They can, um, and somebody was kind enough to say recently, actually it was Cornelia Funk who, who wrote um, uh, The Thief Lord and Inkheart, wonderful, wonderful books for kids. And uh, she said how much she liked the poems. There aren't many of them. There's like four or five of, in each book. But it's another way to to draw um, to draw uh, people, children particularly, into the words and into the magic of the words and into the rhythm of the words. Words are incantations, I suppose, is what I'm saying. And and I love the idea of 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 them. Uh, being used um, more liberally and more creatively than I think uh, our present generation is. Um, I think it would be lovely if, 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 you know, kids were 
taking some of the words that they having to figure out in, in Aberabra, maybe with a dictionary by a side, no problem with that. And then, you know, finding a way to use them in, in, in their own language, because the more words you have to say, the more words you have to express things with, firstly, the better you are at expression, and the better you are at saying, I love you, the better you are at saying, this is why I hate you. Um, um, it's very important to have uh, as broad um, um, a cross-section, I, I believe, of, of, of words as possible. And uh, so that's, that's one of the ways that I've, I've tried to make the, the, the music, the, the words, sing a little bit in, in the Aberat books. You now have a family. Yes, how does having a family and having children, how does that change you as a writer and as a filmmaker and as an uh, artist? It's a, it's a big one, this one. Um, uh, luckily, it's just one. <laughs> luckily, it's just one. Just, it's a big responsibility. Nick is 16, and she's a beautiful, beautiful 16-year-old lady, young lady. And, uh, and I'm fearful for her all the time. And I was never, you know, I was never, I was, um, you know, I never had that before. Even though I'd had partners before, they were roughly my equal. Uh, David, uh, Nick's uh, dad, uh, my husband is um, 40 this year, I'm 51. Um, um, we share pretty much equally the parenting um, uh, uh, issues in the house uh, though Nick isn't always with us some of the time she's with her, her mom um, but I'm I'm um, I'm afraid for her in a way that I was never afraid for myself though probably my parents were afraid for me uh, you know it's a, it's a bad world and it's a it's a, it's a worse world than it used to be. And again, that's how I think um, words can be useful. And that's how I think articulation can be useful. It's one of the things I despise about. Can I be political just for a moment? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I despise about Bush is his inability to use words in anything but the most simplistic of fashions. I mean, it's embarrassing to hear a man who is. You know, supposed to be, and his dad was pretty, pretty darn articulate. But this guy, I mean, uh, it's embarrassing. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not a great uh, carry freak either because I think he's a cold fish. But, but you know, um, I prefer an articulate cold fish to, to, to a dumb, a dumb warm one. <laughs> <laughs> the the main character in Aberat is a candy quackenbush. Yeah. Uh, you've modeled her a bit after Nicole, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I Well, you know, it's been interesting watching how feisty a 16-year-old, well, she wasn't 16 when I started these stories. I mean, I started r painting these paintings almost 10 years ago now, and so I started them even before I knew David. Mm -hmm. But then when Nicole did come into my life, uh, she was seven. And she was feisty at seven. 
and I watched her grow up, and I watched her be difficult, and I watched her stand her ground, and I watched her, you know... Talk back. Talk back. Oh, my God, did she <laughs> talk back. But I also, you know, we have five dogs, and and uh, and uh, at one point she... At one point, she liberated the male rats with the female rats for a sort of a period. We had like 42 rats. <laughs> um, um, and she claimed it was an accident, you know, but, you know, who, know, who knows? She tried to hide the tribe of, of, re- of newly borns from me for a little while. And I, at one point, I was, I was why, are you, why are you keeping me away from that end of the cage? And I went to that end of the cage, and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> This is twenty rats here that I didn't know, didn't know we had. And she looked at me. She said, "Hey, Dad, number two. She calls me Dad, number two. Hey, Dad, number two. And I, you see what happened was the boy got in with the girl." I said, "Yeah, I, I know how those things work." <laughs> but you know, we also have uh, we have parrots and 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 cockatiels and. She's amazing with the animals. She's wonderful with the animals, which is very important to me. Because I think if you can be good with animals and tender with animals, um, then you can be tender with the human animal. Uh, her boyfriends are very respectful of her, uh, and actually of us too, young man, and I like him immensely. Um, it's been a learning curve. It's been, you know, learning not to be angry when it was useless to be angry. Learning to be articulate when I was angry, you know? Yeah, it's difficult to learn to talk to your kids. Yeah. It's... For one thing, you're learning another language. Yes. I mean, you're learning a you know, generational language. And I, uh, I'm sort of 10 years older than her dad naturally would be, if you will, mm-hmm. you know? Um and for a period of time, I was also kind of laying down the law a little bit because uh, David was away a lot, and I had to do a lot of of laying down of the law. And uh, and I would hate, you know, I would lose it, and then I would hate myself for it. I feel I'd feel really bad about my, you know, about the, you know, it's such a complicated issue. It's so complicated. You want to do your best, and what is doing your best? You never know until until you see the results. And what I'm seeing now is my our, David and I's beautiful 16-year-old, you know, turning into an articulate princess. That's as much as I can ask. One of the aspects of your fiction, and especially of Aberat, that I really like, is that evil... In, in the guise especially of Christopher Carrion, yeah, is tragic. Yeah, I, yeah, you, and it hasn't always been that way no, for no, you. I no, mean, no. Rawhead Rex was no. was a killing machine. Yeah, yeah, no. Talk about that transformation for you as a writer and well, as an artist. Well, uh, at at one point in one of my books, I uh, I wrote the line that all evil comes from a lack of love, and I I don't know. Uh, the the line comes in a magic. I don't know what my thought process was at the time. I don't know why I wrote that. What what experience I was having at the time? It's twelve years ago, but it remained with me that idea that that you you if you know love and if you are loved, 
then you can empathize. And if you can empathize, then you really can't be evil. Because it's uh, uh, evil comes from an, in, an incapacity to empathize, to be compassionate, to see the world through somebody else's skin. It's one of the reasons why evil regimes, you know, turn um, uh, minorities um, into less than human if they possibly can, in their language, in their propaganda, the Jew becomes an animal. So therefore you can apply the final solution. This isn't a human being. You know, it's vocabulary. It's back to the word again, isn't it? And, um, you know, the same with the gay men and women when the Reverend Phelps uh, held up the sign at, at, at Matthew Shepard's funeral that said Matthew Shepard's die uh, burns in hell in front of his mother and father mm-hmm. uh, I have to assu- I have to assume for the sake of the of Phelps's soul that he did not believe that Ma- Matthew Phelps was uh, that uh, Matthew Stewart was uh, Shepard was uh, uh, a human being on the same level that he the Reverend Phelps was a human being and um, so what I'm trying to do now as I write about my villains is I'm trying to say, particularly when writing for younger audiences, I'm trying to say, look, these are screwed up people. They're not abstract villains. They're not Moff Tarkin from the first Star Wars movie, you know, where the, the, the immortal Peter Cushing plucking at his little lip as he thinks <laughs> about destroying planets. Um, and, you know, even Lucas gets that, doesn't he? Because in the first Star Wars movie, the movement of, of, of Darth Vader is towards humanity. Sure, he becomes human, fully be- human by the end of the right. story. Right, and I know a lot of people who think that that's a terrible, terrible thing, that it, 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 it bases the series, and I think it's actually one of the things which elevates the series. And I think that uh, we, uh, we have to look always, however hard it is. I, I'm interrupting myself. I got a letter. Uh, an incredibly moving letter from a lady who I had, whose whose uh, son is in Iraq at the moment, uh, serving in Iraq, and uh, I had written a letter to him, uh, telling him how proud I was that that he was doing his service and that you know I'd sent some books for him for to be awaiting him on his return, and his mother wrote me a lovely letter thanking thanking me for the, the books and said that uh, her son was presently watching over the man-eating lions that Saddam Hussein's son had kept for the devouring of failed Olympians from Iraq. Wow. You got that sentence, right? Yes. That's pretty scary. That's terrifying. Now... You know, it's really hard to find the humanity in that, right? No, yeah. It's really, really hard to find, well, where the hell is the humanity in this man? Where is it? And you just want to hate. I mean, I do. I own up. I just want to hate this guy. Mm -hmm. I'm glad he's dead, you know. 
But another part of me, I suppose the artist part of me, says, but I also need to understand. Because if you don't understand, you know, it'll repeat itself. If you don't figure out why it happened once, it'll happen again. Absolutely. And so one of the things that I try and do in the books I write is set the mystery, the curiosity of villainy into the audience's head, particularly the younger reader's head, so that you see sometimes, uh, for instance, Mr. Hood in uh, in uh, Thief of Always is a lonely old bastard. <laughs> He's a lonely, cold, frigid, empty-hearted uh, thing. No, that's not right. Not thing. There, you see, I'm doing it. I'm not object. I'm, I'm not allowing him his humanity. Yes, exactly. I'm objectifying him. Uh, uh, empty-hearted man, and um, and I think we have. You know, we we're we're tussling right now as a culture um, with how we deal with villainy because part of us, and I completely understand this one wants to to say you know these the you know somebody who kills children somebody who 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 feeds people to lions for god's sake well why should i bother with even trying to understand who that person was you know and there's a part of me which completely goes along with that and says yeah you know, you're right why bother and there's another part of me that thinks well unless we bother We'll never, we'll never fix it. Sure, that was that person was once somebody's child. Well, that that person was, you know, Saddam Hussein's child, and we know why Saddam Hussein's child ended up like that. Yeah, not a surprise. Yeah, not a big surprise. Um, uh, there's a short poem in um, uh, in Weave World. Uh, the uh, the agony of families is not congenital disease, but feet that follow where the foot that has proceeded them was put. In other words, the real horror is when one foot just goes exactly where dad's foot went, particularly if dad's foot went in a bad place. And you've got to learn to break the cycles. And the only way you break the cycles, I think, is by understanding the cycles. So in in my little ways, uh, I'm saying, you know, Christopher Carey and this villain is, um, is a, a bad, screwed-up man. And let's, uh, let's uh, see if we can understand how he comes to be who he is before... Um, he has too many uh, detrimental effects upon the world. Let's put it that way. I what I really liked was that you you did that, but you didn't overdo it. I that no, what, you, you really put made the decision on had yeah I mix the good and the bad yeah. just in the right proportion so and that you leave it to the audience a little bit right right yeah you didn't yeah. spell it every out it wasn't a psychoanalytic right here's this 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 yeah and i also think honestly uh, rick um 
you know, to be perfectly blunt as a storyteller, you've still got to hate the villain. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, I still gotta, you know, I still gotta have that moment when I go, yeah, get that son of a gun. So I mean, it's a, it's a it's a balancing act that you're you're trying for constantly. I wonder if you would want to talk a little bit about yourself as a writer, as a witness, <gasps> for to to the world and and how you report back. Well, I think there are places where I've done that. I mean, in in uh, Sacrament, which was which was a book which had a gay character, a great a gay hero. Mm-hmm. Um, was written after the death of my cousin at the age of 30 from AIDS and very much had the issue of my witnessing the death of many people from AIDS. Um, I think it's a balancing act again. I mean, I seem to have talked a lot about balancing act this afternoon, but I think I'm a Libra and I think I'm supposed to think about balancing (laughs) act. But um, I think some of it is about me wanting to um, um, yes, witness, and yet context the witnessing in an invented place so that it never seems, going back to what you were saying earlier about what I did with Carrion, it never seems too, uh, you never too heavy-handed. You know, part of the fun of this is mm-hmm. that is that the audience will will um won't feel lectured to the last thing i want in all the world is for an audience to pick up aberrant or any of my other books and feel like oh god somebody's wagging their finger at me you know my job is to give people pleasure and if they pick up aberrant and it's full of color and fun and scares and you know has a little bit of something to take away with you as well. Well, man, that would be great. But I'm not going to, absolutely not going to make somebody um, um, pay <laughs> for the, uh, you know, pay for, for, the, uh, for the, uh, the, uh, the error of buying my book. I want, <laughs> I want people to have fun. I want people to have as much fun as I can give them and in as many ways as I can give it. That really comes across in Abrad. It's such a riot. Yeah, there you Color go. and variety yeah, yeah. And, and oddness and strangeness. Yeah, yeah. I got to ask you a little bit. Um, I just talked to, to China Mieville. Yeah, yeah. And one of his favorite things, and one of my favorite things about his books and your books are the monsters. Right. Well, <laughs> tell me how you went from being maybe as a kid afraid of monsters right. to loving the monster but still being afraid. Well, first thing I want to say is China gave the first Abrap book my favorite review. I mean, China was amazing in the sense that he gave a review of the in the Guardian to the book, which made me cry because it he's just just like because these books take a long time to do. I mean, there's a lot of painting and a lot of writing and. You know, it's a long journey, and China wrote this review, and it's the only time I've ever written a fan letter to a to a to a to a reviewer. And I wrote and I said, uh, you know, I don't know about the protocol about this. I don't know if I'm even supposed to do this, but thank you because you you completely got what I was up to. And actually, now I'm writing an introduction to one of his books, so that's kind of nice. Um, but I think that the um, uh, 
journey that you take uh, as a writer from from um, the the simple idea to the riot, if you will, is 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 one which has is very different from me for from the way I think it is in China's books. I mean, how did he describe his process? He just said that for him, it was all about the monsters. You see, for me, it's all about making the paintings and then reading whether the paintings are monstrous or 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 not. Or you know, like there's a character in Abrat Two called Lehmannval, and he has three mouths, and he's lined with yellow teeth, and he speaks to insects because this this complexity of labial arrangements can allows him to make kind of insecty kind of noises, and the painting sort of taught me that, and. So I don't, I really, again, this goes back to, you know, again, taking a line for a walk. I never think, boy, I'm going to make a monster now. Interesting. I just think I'm going to make a painting and let's see where we go. And sometimes the paintings, you know, look like, uh, for instance, now, and, you know, it's also in the eye of the beholder. This is also an interesting point. There's a character called John Mischief in the two books. And John Mischief lives with his seven brothers who sprout as separate heads on his on his two antlers and are also all called John something, which makes for interesting conversations. And the the the, the eight Johns, um the picture of of them is the second painting that I made of the five hundred. And I know people who look at that painting and think it's a monster. And I look at it, and I just he just smiles at me. Yeah, he's one of the most enjoyable characters in the book. You see, there and you the, go. So it's, I, in, it's in the eye of the beholder, I think. You know, I mean, I think that, that when China writes monsters, I mean, you boy, you pretty much know. Um, because they do terrible things. and Inventively. Inventively. Very often they don't look monstrous. I mean, you know, he's very good at at, at, at making sure there isn't that neat little um, alignment of um, the monstrous appearance and the monstrous uh, the monstrous act. As we all know, um, beautiful people are capable of doing very horrible things, and some of the most uh, loving. And and uh, adorable people in my life are people who are not going to win any beauty pageants, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it's we we got to look. It's all in the eyes, you know. You said at the very beginning of this a couple of hours ago. You said <laughs> um, you said uh, something about the paintings ha- having the life in the eyes. And I think it's in the eyes. I think once I painted the eyes in, I pretty much know whether it's going to be a villain or not. Could you tell us a little bit about what's coming up? I'm I'm particularly interested in the third book of the uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, I have I have the third book of the art, and I have the second book of Galilee, and I have uh, Aberat two and three. Um. I've just finished a screenplay for Tortured Souls, which is a, a movie which I may direct next year for Universal. Um, uh, Where does that come from? It comes from a series of toys that I created with Todd McFarlane. 
and um, I've had great fun making um, uh, action figures in the last little while. It's been tremendous fun. Boy, what a dream for for a oh, boy who loves monsters! Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, uh, Tortured Souls is 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 a very it's a straightforward horror movie. It's a it's a very scary horror movie. I hope. And um, I'm thinking I might direct it. Uh, I am delivering to HarperCollins uh, early next year a collection of short fiction which not only puts together some of my fiction, which has not been hitherto collected, pieces that have appeared in various places and have never been put into a single book, but also, and I think more importantly, contains a long short story or long novella in which a character of mine called Harry Damore, who is a, a detective... Yeah. Supernatural detective. Exactly. Goes up against um, a fellow called Pinhead from the Hellraiser movies, and in which, because I may as well tell you this, because I've told a couple of other people, Pinhead dies. And um, it is such a relief to be killing the monkey on my back off. <laughs> um, that I'm having a final time with that. So I'll write that. And then, depending on whether I make the movie or not, if I don't make the movie, then I think uh, it's either Abrat 3 or it's uh, The Art 3. The Art 3 is a huge book. So it's still around. I, oh I was my, wondering. Oh, I was no. wondering if it had just kind of faded no, enough no. into the sunset. No, 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 no. It's huge. It's it's huge. It sits. It sits um, like Jabba the Hut <laughs> at the back <laughs> of my head. <laughs> um, but no, no, nothing. You know these mythologies. Um, um, sometimes are better for sort of leaving them to sort of percolate a little bit. And uh, that's certainly been the case with um, with the art because I, the solution to the narrative, it's interesting. We haven't talked about this. Maybe next time we'll talk about this. <laughs> okay. But this, the, uh, in, in one sense, I think of narratives as being sort of incredibly elaborate crossword puzzles. There's actually only one solution that fits. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. A story has to tell itself, and it yes. tells itself in exactly one way. In only one way. Absolutely right. And I also tell you something else, which I haven't said on the air yet. So you're hearing it for the first, or your audience hearing it for the first time. I wrote uh, Abrat two in its entirety. Wrote it for a year. Finished it was uh, about to send it off. And I did a final reading aloud because I read I read my texts aloud to myself mm-hmm. one time before I send it off, which is a piece of advice that I, I read once um, from uh, Conrad. Conrad uh, did that. Joseph Conrad did that. He, he said it was a way of, of getting the, 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 the sense of, the, of the, the cadence correct. And so I read the I read the Abrat two text through and I didn't like it. And I called uh, I called Harper Collins and I said, uh, <laughs> you know, I know you've been waiting a year, guys, um, um, but I'm I'm ditching this whole thing. I'm throwing this whole thing away. 
I can't imagine they were happy to hear that. It was not a happy conversation, Rick. It must not have been a happy feeling either. It was a wretched feeling. It was really the worst week of my creative career. I mean, I, uh, and, and yet, and here's interesting, I have the same number of paintings as subject matter in this book is in the finished second volume, which you have here, mm-hmm. as ideally in the volume that I threw away. But there are no situations in common. My God, you completely rewrote the entire second novel? Hold on, thrown away. There's actually one copy in existence, which is my handwritten draft, but everything else was, uh, was uh, shredded, you know. Wow, <laughs> that must have been tough. But it goes back to what you were talking about when you were talking about um, um, there the being one way to tell the story. You see, I hadn't found the one way to tell the story. I'd failed in the crossword. I cheated the crossword is what I'd done. Mm-hmm. And I knew it. As soon as I read it, I thought I knew it. And I'm not going to spoil something that I'd taken so long because I've been painting these pictures for, you know, at that point I've been painting them for seven years. And I, I'm not going to spoil these things. It's too, it's, this whole adventure is too important to me. I am going to go back and start again. And uh, a year later I delivered a second book to them. Well, actually, del- yes, there's a second volume, and they never saw the other version, and there's only one exi- one in copy in existence, and I only I know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. We've been talking with Clive Barker. His latest book is Aberat, Days of Magic, Nights of War. Thanks for joining us, Clive. Rick, I have to tell you, this has been immense fun. Thank you. Uh, me too. Thanks.